Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Wang Gangwu, our 12th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Prof Wang will be delivering his second lecture titled Opening to the Global Maritime. Following his lecture, Prof Wang will take questions from the audience in a Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Dr. Noshariel Saad, Senior Fellow at ISIS Yusuf Ishak Institute. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. Thank you for joining us at the auditorium today. Please be, please be reminded to switch your mobile phones to silent mode. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the, during the lecture through the Facebook comments. For our audience members here at the auditorium today, please step up to the mic during the Q&A session to ask your questions. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We would also like to hear your views on the event. Please help us fill up the feedback form at the end of the lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I would like to invite Professor Wang to begin his second lecture titled Opening to the Global, Global Marine Time. Professor Wang, please. Friends and colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, in my last lecture, I focused on the rise of local archaeologic and the mainland cultures to show why the peoples of the region shared a remarkable confidence in their ability to define their local identities. This confidence enabled them to interact readily with their neighboring civilizations. And of the three that influenced the region's early development, the Hindu Buddhist had the deepest roots going back more than a thousand years. The imperial Chinese or Sinic coming from the north and east came later, and its impact was limited to material culture. The Islamic Mediterranean from the west across the Indian Ocean was most successful among the maritime peoples. From the start and for all parts of the region, Indic civilization was favored. It grew deep roots because it seemed to have had comprehensive appeal, especially among the agrarian peoples of the mainland. Even when the local peoples among the uh, uh, and established links with the Sinic or Chinese civilization to the north, what they found they had in common was their devotion to the Buddhist work, work view, worldview that came from India. As for the Mediterranean world further west, the contacts were initially confined to trade, and it was the openness of the maritime areas that attracted the merchants from the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. However, when Islamic power led by Persians and Turco-Mongols came overland, overland to dominate northern India, the influence of the Indic civilization on our region began to diminish. I suggested in my last lecture that the 13th century was pivotal. 
the bearers of both the Sinaic and the Islamic civilization became more active and their impact on the life and cultures of the archipelago became prominent. What was striking was the way the mainland and the archipelago peoples responded differently to the changes in civilization context. They each chose what they thought would enhance their quality of life and make their respective local cultures stronger and more distinctive. On the mainland, the Vietnamese elites retained the core ideas of the Sinic civilization, but kept a clear political distance between their dynastic state and Chinese imperial power. The small Cham, Cham state, the Champa, to their south, they, however, continued to take their cultural values from Indic civilization. The Cham people were Austronesian-speaking people who inhabited central and south Vietnam. However, they were careful <clears throat> they were careful to draw clear lines between them and the Khmer kingdom, their Khmer neighbors. At the same time, the Cham rulers also had to fight the Vietnamese to their north. After the 15th century, the Cham peoples began to lose their lands to a Vietnamese empire, but they retained their maritime culture and did not change their way of life. And when their Malay cousins of the archipelago turned to embrace Islam, they also chose to do the same. Now this was quite different with the Khmer and Mon peoples uh, who were from Cambodia and southern Burma. For reasons that are still unclear, they discarded the Hindu core of their Indic civilization. And this was surprising when you see what you see in the monuments of the Angkorian Empire, how much was done to portray the glorious Hindu features of that civilization. But although direct Indic influence was lost, it is remarkable how strong it remained in the Buddhist cultures that flourished thereafter. And when new groups of peoples migrated southwards from Yunnan and the Tibetan highlands, uh, they brought their own Indic Buddhist faith, and much of the mainland was transformed by them. In different ways and at different times, the various Siamese dynasties of Ayutthaya and the Pu Myanmar peoples of the Pagan and Ava empires established Buddhist states to succeed the weakened Khmer imperial realms. I have been highly selective in my references to history. Uh, they are limited to what illustrates the shaping of local cultures that had drawn on ancient civilizations for inspiration. And these lectures are not about our region's history as a whole, uh, but about a particular phenomenon that I believe is still relevant and may become even more so in the, as the modern world order faces new challenges. And I now come to the period when stronger forces from afar began to impact on the region. I mentioned earlier 
the invaders out of continental Asia that led to Islamic control over large parts of northern India. Also, there were nomadic armies, also from North and Central Asia, especially the Khitans, the Georgians, and the Mongols, who harassed the Chinese dynasties. And that was a time when the Song Neo-Confucian scholars and philosophers were re-examining the very foundations of Sinic civilization. Sadly, their efforts could not save the dynasty from being conquered by the Mongol Kublai Khan. In short, during the 13th century, new forces from the West via India and from the East via China provided severe tests for the local cultures of our region, both on the mainland and in the archipelago. Most of this lecture will deal with a new set of maritime peoples who circumnavigated the world by crossing massive oceans. The period covers the centuries leading to the 18th century when our region experienced what uh, Anthony Reid called the age of commerce. From the perspective of civilizations and cultures, the period might also be described as the age of the fourth civilization. By this I mean it marked the growing presence of the Christian half of the monotheistic Mediterranean civilization. That had been a constant rival to the Islamic half and was seen in our region as a separate civilization. Let me outline some notable events following the coming of the Portuguese and the Spanish. Our mainland polities of the Mon, the Burmese, the Shan, and the Thai noted their arrival and for the next three centuries kept these foreigners out and chose to concentrate on fighting among themselves. The Buddhist kingdoms did welcome Portuguese help with superior weaponry, but were not attracted to their Christian civilization. They remained connected with Indic civilization even though Buddhism was no longer of importance on the Indian subcontinent. Through sustained contacts with Sri Lanka, the traditions of Theravada Buddhism were regularly nourished. Siamese rulers in particular were aware that the Europeans offered different ideas and institutions that might be useful for their political needs. For example, the Ayutthaya king Narai did establish informal alliance with France against the expanding Dutch and English companies. But despite both sides making efforts to benefit from increased contacts, the Siamese elites remained unmoved by what the Jesuit Catholic scholars had to offer. In comparison, the Burmese were interested in Portuguese military firepower and very little else. The Vietnamese were more open to new ideas, notably among those in the south along their southern frontier in the areas furthest from the Chinese Sinic core. For the literati mandarins of the north, however, the new civilization was politely received, but the influence was limited. As for the rulers of maritime Southeast Asia, known as Nusantara, most of them had converted to Islam 
just before the Iberians arrived during the 16th century, from where the, the Portugal and Spain are today. The Muslim states were drawn both to the faith as well as to trade and economic advantages, They're drawn to the Islamic faith. There was a replacement of the formal political institutions that had been inspired by Indic civilization. But new Islamic influences were also coming from India. For example, Sufi religious teachings was, uh, was gained influence in North Sumatra. I still remember how impressed I was when I was editor of the Malaysian branch of the Royal Society Society. A profound work was brought to my attention. This was a study of the attempt by Nuruddin al-Raniri to counter the insights of a local Sufi poet, Hamza Fansuri. Although only incidentally, that work captured for me the quality of the philosophical concerns about Islamic civilization that the ruling classes in the Malay world were already drawn to appreciate. At the same time, I was also reminded by my visits to the historic sites of Java and Cambodia, how much of the Indic virtual, visual arts and aesthetics deeply lodged in our region's cultures have survived. The peoples on the mainland and in the archipelago were clearly comfortable and confident about the integrity of their earlier local responses to different civilizations. Their domesticated cultures had helped them to manage their relationships with the Sinaic and the Islamic civilizations that came later. It seemed to me that these, their experiences also taught them to treat new civilizational manifestations as unthreatening to their fundamental beliefs. It is with that background in mind that I have approached the question, approached the question of how our region responded to the arrival of the Portuguese and the Spanish, and then later the trading companies of the Dutch and then the French. When Vasco da Gama was recorded as saying, uh, when he arrived in, in Malabar, he said, we have come for Christians and spices. And he added an additional dimension to what had been largely an Indic trading environment that had been enlivened by a localized framework with a strong Islamic edge. One telling example was the way the Undang-Undang Laud Malacca, or Maritime Laws of Malacca, were respected by the merchants of Indic, Sinic, and Islamic backgrounds alike. It has often been taken for granted that the arrival of the Portuguese and Spanish marked a turning point in the region's history. Some historians have gone further to suggest that it was an early marker of the rise of a global modern civilization. But there was actually nothing modern about this Iberian mission. What it signaled was the arrival of the Mediterranean heritage of the civil wars between two alternative paths of a common monotheistic faith. Coming with well-armed ships into the Indian Ocean, the Portuguese brought with them centuries of Catholic European hostility against their Islamic rivals. By that time, 
the Muslims in Asia, especially those of the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the western coast of India, were looking to the Ottoman Turks in Istanbul for leadership and were determined to respond violently in return when the Portuguese arrived. As we know, their deadly struggles to represent their faith in the archipelago saw the Portuguese take over Muslim Malacca and then go on to control the Maluku Spice Islands. Singapore was part of that struggle, especially when the Malaccan forces tried to defend their new base up the Johor River. And after that failed, and they moved south to the Riaulinga Archipelago, Singapore had only a small role to play in the wars that continued for the next two centuries. Merchants from the Indic and Sinic worlds continued to trade in Portuguese Malacca. The Orang Laut and others in Singapore would have been aware of the civilizational conflicts taking place around them, but they lived mainly with Nusantara Islam. And that would have given them some sense of security because the civilization of the caliphate, which was the headship of the Islamic faith, had by that time developed a large footprint in our region. Furthermore, when Indic Buddhist cultures, local cultures, remained strong on the mainland, and Islamic economic influence was growing in the archipelago, we find Sinic civilization undergoing unexpected changes. Changes that would affect Chinese relations with our region. In my last lecture, I mentioned the Mongol conquest and unification of China that changed the nature of Sinic civilization. In addition to changes to the map of China, to the long distance outreach of Chinese coastal merchants, and to the further expansion of Islamic civilization in our region, there were at least three other shifts of historical significance after the 14th century. First, the Ming Chinese rulers were drawn back north by the Mongol threats and led them back to a continental worldview. Second, the Koreans and Vietnamese saw how the Chinese had failed to defend Sinai civilization against the Mongol barbarians in their eyes. And for the Japanese, the, that total Mongol conquest of China only confirmed their belief that they had been right all along to choose only those bits of Sinai civilization that enhance their own cultures. Third, the coastal Chinese settlers in the south had to relearn to depend on themselves to advance their maritime ambitions and adopt new ways to deal with the European, European commercial empires that now appeared on China's shores. From across the South China Sea, the Ming rulers had supported the rise of Islamic Malacca and sent the Muslim Admiral Zheng He to lead seven expeditions to the Indian Ocean. But then when they were satisfied that there were no enemies out there, the powerful fleet was withdrawn and destroyed. The Chinese authorities did continue to be watchful of external maritime contacts, but they prohibited their own merchants from trading overseas. This forced foreign trade 
to be conducted through a highly bureaucratized tributary system. This was so institutionalized that it is now often presented as a Chinese world order that the Chinese might want to restore. However, its contemporary impact was not much more than to ensure maritime security by restricting private trade on the China coast. Fortunately for the coastal provinces, the local mandarins knew that it was not in their interest to curtail merchant enterprise to that extent. They were often lax with their controls and therefore made it possible for considerable Chinese private commerce to thrive. The Buddhist states on the mainland had no difficulty with this tributary system, and the Siamese kingdom in particular continued its profitable trade and profitable relations with the Chinese. This tributary system certainly did not affect trading connections between mainland Southeast Asia and various Europeans, nor did it prevent them from developing links with Muslim merchants. As mentioned earlier, the Siamese, the Mon, the Burmese rulers did establish trading relations with the Europeans to advance their own ambitions down the Malay Peninsula. But they were unable to avoid their own deadly wars among themselves and thus never posed a serious threat to the areas further south. What was more serious for Nusantara Islam was the way the Catholic powers and their caliphate rivals extended their antagonistic relations into our region. Here, our region encountered a bifurcation of civilizational linkages. The Sinic and the European form a different set of relationships. In a transactional approach peculiar to the governance of Ming China, the Portuguese were allowed to administer Macau as the only port city open to foreign trade, foreign private trade. This was an intriguing development. It gave the Portuguese an advantage that made them more than equal than their rivals who had to operate through the tribute system. Further east, the Hokkien Chinese had access to Luzon in the Philippines, and this helped the Spanish obtain spices and even convert Chinese Christians. And through the Manila Galleon, that was a trade with Mexico, the Chinese manufacturers in great demand in Europe were also able to reach those markets across the Pacific Ocean. In short, despite the official restrictions by the Ming authorities, Chinese merchants were increasing their commercial influence. Trading activities from much of the region were forced to adapt to the regular battles involving the Christian Muslim rivals, but they could still be conducted in the old familiar ways. The list of traded goods grew longer, and in time the major players came to concentrate on gaining profits and cared less about saving souls. Local elites also became skilled in dealing with the different factors that guided foreign ventures in their territories. However, the four civilizations now in contact with one another in our region, the Indic, the Sinic, the Islamic, 
and the Christian European were still interacting on the same trading platforms. And whether violently or peacefully, they were still competing in similar ways. Here, I believe we can say that our region's confidence in their local cultures while interacting with expanding civilizational interests helped them to manage their relationships with considerable skill. The fact that their earlier partners or competitors of Sinic or Islamic origin were not considered threatening to their cultures was a vital factor in their resilience. This brings me to the Europeans who first arrived on the Malabar coast, located on the southwestern coast of India. Theirs was a composite Mediterranean civilization that had grown out of ancient civilizations in Africa and Asia, along the two river systems of the Nile and the Tigris-Euphrates. We now have a fuller record of how the civilizations crossed communal, cultural, and political borders, and how several cultures could produce a new civilization, and how two civilizations could interact and converge into one more inspirational civilization. I recall my time as a history student when I saw our region's mainland as a large peninsula that did not produce its own civilization, and that its narrow peninsula that with the Singapore and Malaya as Ujong Tana did not unite it with the archipelagic world, but actually served as a dividing space between the maritime and the continental. I was led to compare our region with the enclosed Mediterranean that has several prominent peninsulas, with each of them contributing to the struggle for civilizational supremacy. The largest were those of Anatolia, that's located on the Asian part of today's Turkey, Italy, and Iberia, the peninsula where Spain and Portugal, Portugal are today. And these three, with other small peninsulas and islands, that made Greece into an exceptionally spiky peninsula. Over time, the cultures that developed in each of them contributed political resources to a single Mediterranean civilization. The peoples had come from different directions. The Semitic peoples of the East and South, who spoke Hebrew and Arabic, among others. The Indo-Europeans of continental Europe and Eurasia and Northern Europe, and the indigenous peoples of North Africa. And over the centuries, they had evolved their varying belief systems from having many gods to different perspectives of a monotheistic faith. Hence emerged over millennia the exclusive Hebrew, the mission-driven Christian, and the self-purifying Umar, Islamic Ummah. Eventually, it was this faith in the same God that laid the foundations of a deeply interlocked and dynamic Mediterranean civilization. I was intrigued by how this happened. The peninsulas were constantly challenged within the claustrophobic sea. Under pressure from the empires of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, the Anatolian Peninsula provided an opening to the coastal waters 
that enabled them to confront the Greek city-states. And in response, the city-states and their maritime colonies organized themselves to resist the Persian Empire. Eventually, they produced their own intercontinental empire under Alexander the Great. And this enabled the Mediterranean world to turn eastwards and conquer continental territory in India and Central Asia. The flowering of that imperial Hellenistic power stimulated the rise of an even more powerful Roman Empire on another peninsula, this time that of Italy. Its expansion, which spread west to Iberia and the whole length of North Africa, led to the, its control of the whole of the Mediterranean for several centuries. However, after the seventh century, the successor states of this Roman Empire succumbed to an explosive Arab power in the Eastern Mediterranean that created their distinctive Islamic cultures. For more than seven centuries after that, the Abbasid Caliphate dominated its southern coasts and was later reinforced by freshly Islamized Turkic invaders from Central Asia who steadily expanded westwards. In the face of these advances, the European Christian lords launched their crusades and fought for centuries to drive out the Muslims and retake the holy city of Jerusalem. They also hoped to get direct access to the wealth of India, but their efforts were in vain. It was not until the 15th century when the Muslims captured Constantinople, Constantinople and the Spanish drove the Muslims out of the Iberian Peninsula that the European half of the Mediterranean finally freed itself from their long confinement within the sea. The kingdoms of Portugal and Spain sponsored the adventurers who took Mediterranean civilization out across the open oceans, both finding their new world and both pushing further to connect with the Asian continent. This Iberian moment in our region was tied to the quest for the Spice Islands and the wealth for those who could control their access. No less important was the mission to find Christian allies against the Muslim powers. But apart from a small number of Christian communities on the Malabar coast, there were none to be found. Instead, finding heathen Chinese and Japanese was a great challenge, and that did lead the faith warriors from the Catholic powers to try to make new Christians. For reasons that had to do with the deep gulf between civilizations, most of their efforts kept raising conversion hopes, but largely came to nothing during those early centuries. The Spanish friars that went, who went westwards were more successful. They said less about trade and spices, but concentrated on extending their mission across the Pacific to the Philippines. They were fortunate to reach the islands before the Muslims advanced very far and were able to convert most of the indigenous peoples there. As in the Mediterranean, the Catholic powers rarely succeeded in converting those who were already Muslim. And this reminds us of their origins as a composite civilization, separated by different measures of God's truth, 
The divisions were deepened when they met outside the Mediterranean while encountering other civilizations. I shall not deal here with what followed, that is post-Renaissance Europe and its uh, secular modern civilizations, uh, but we'll, uh, that will be the subject of my last two lectures. To sum up, the arrival of well-armed Portuguese ships led to conflict wherever they met their Muslim comp competitors. This led to a disruption in existing trading conditions. The Portuguese had to build fortified ports and depended on naval firepower to resolve any issues of contention. By so doing, they were never free from fighting old crusading battles. And to put it simply, they failed to sustain the commercial advantage that they had when they controlled the Spice Islands and held a monopoly position in Macau. It was left to their successors from Northwest Europe to develop a mercantilist emphasis on trade that eventually produced a civilizational challenge to everything that the region had been accustomed to in the past. Something new, identified later as capitalism, was taking over from older trading conventions in Western Europe. And it ultimately led to important transformations around the world. This began with the globalization of sea power. And it began with the Iberians breaking out of the Mediterranean and crossing both the Atlantic and the Pacific. But they were primarily royal and imperial exercises that took pride in their conversions of indigenous peoples and were largely satisfied by the acquisition of precious metals like gold and silver. It was not until a century later that a new breed of adventurers, mainly Protestant Christians, who came to focus their attention primarily on the profits of trade. In the Netherlands and England, these merchants chafed at the limits of royal and church patronage and developed the trading organizations that emerged in Asia as the English and Dutch East India companies, the EIC and the VOC. A VOC. The companies sought support from the state and its nobles to gain a monopoly of long-distance trade and created the best possible conditions for the merchant classes to work in. By combining naval power with innovative financial institutions, the two companies began to change the economic framework of their own countries as well as those in part of our region. On the surface, this might seem to be no more than a new way to make fortunes, but it was actually more, more than that. It introduced the practice of state-protected state private enterprise and may be seen as the young shoots of a new kind of political economy. The calculations that propelled the companies to pursue material wealth in this way could be described as the product of a modern mind, one that was not burdened by the traditions of church and state and concentrated on profitable outcomes. In the historical discourse of European civilization, that development was the outcome of major reinterpretations of Christian gospel and a byproduct of major conflicts 
among powerful religious and political interests. For the first stage, it had begun with the Roman Church defending against a triumphant Ottoman Empire that led to the rise of Renaissance Europe. Then came the Christian wars between Catholic powers and Protestant kingdoms. And this was a product of the Reformation and was challenged by several religious orders of the Counter-Reformation. The long lists of wars and the voluminous literature devoted to sorting out rights and wrongs was accompanied by many controversies about what triggered this new kind of thinking. The details of what happened need not concern us here. The next stage was the work of powerful minds that brought fundamental changes to an increasingly dynamic world. However, for the three centuries after Vasco da Gama's arrival, there were very few indications in Asia that the ruling elite here were aware of the changes happening in Europe. There were European accounts of their priests, European priests, conversing with powerful leaders of Mughal India or Ming Chinese or Qing Manchu emperors and making an impression, making an impression on some of these rulers. But it is doubtful if, if any of the rulers in our region thought it necessary to watch out for what was about to transform the West into a powerful force for the future. Those directly involved in the European trade were ready to respond to the growing markets, like the new commodities like tea and cotton textiles in Europe, as well as the opium addiction that created a massive market in China. We can assume that they were all happy with the news that trading volumes rose rapidly as more European merchants joined in the competition for profit during the, 19, during the 18th century. Nothing in our region's records suggests that there was any awareness that a modern civilization was on the horizon. If anything, the contrary was true. When the French version of the East India of the East Asia Company arrived in Asia during and after the reign of uh, King Louis XIV, they acted more like the Iberians before them. They were accompanied by militant priests and reminded our region that there was a part of Europe that was still committed to bringing Christian civilization to Asia. It is also interesting that the French missions concentrated on the heathen of Indic and Sinic civilizations and usually left their Islamic rivals of the archipelago and left them alone. This brings me back to the strong cultures in our region that had over the centuries learned how to handle the ancient civilizations that they had earlier encountered. They had each shaped their distinct cultures so well that the people remained confident that their heritage was sound and capable of dealing with what new groups of, what new groups of Europeans were bringing to the region. The mainland states shifted their Indic heritage from Hindu gods and institutions to the worship of the Buddha. Although they reached the ocean and their ports traded across the Gulf of Siam and Bay of Bengal, the internecine wars overland among themselves were far more important in determining the fate of their countries. The kingdom of Ayutthaya pushed 
farther south to advance its maritime interests and was the most active in dealing with European maritime trading companies. But even they had to turn regularly inwards to deal with incessant threats from their continental neighbors, especially from the Burmese. In comparison, the peoples of the archipelago were far more responsive to the newcomers in the region. Being oriented to the seas, they had always been more open and inclusive. With that background, they observed how the Dutch outdid their Banten rivals in West Java and even offered support to the Dutch to ensure the defeat of the Portuguese in Malacca. They also found it easier to trade with the East India companies after the Portuguese were edged out of the Spice Islands. The Dutch and English merchants did not, did not portray themselves as enemies of what the Nusantara peoples accepted as Muslim civilization. It was enough that their company agents were proud of their own European civilization that was no less ancient and distinguished as the Islamic. But they had responded to the Reformation divide in the Christian churches and rejected the Iberian obsession with crusades and holy war, certainly in Asia. Instead, with the support of their political leaders, they concentrated on developing a commercial framework within which religion and other civilizational factors would hand, were handled with a degree of sensitivity. It is interesting to see how the local cultures interacted positively with these foreign protagonists. Our region's own trading classes also did their best to ensure that business relations would be profitable. A good example of this was the way Muslim Johor stood with the Christian Dutch against their Muslim rivals in the Achenese Empire. Another was how the Dutch were quick to note that Chinese private traders, who were equally uninterested in religious differences, were already established in various parts of the archipelago. When they realized that these Chinese were ready to respond to the new opportunities that their East India Company could provide, valuable partnerships were set up to expand their respective outreach wherever they could. As the Dutch were keen to advance further east to the China coast, to Taiwan and to Japan, such cooperation proved to be very advantageous. The English company, in turn, shared a similar outlook about civilizational differences. Their early, conf their early conflicts, this is between the Dutch and the English, were uh, their conflicts were primarily with their Dutch rivals over access to the Spice Islands. When they saw better opportunities for their products on the Indian subcontinent, they shifted their focus. There they found that all sides, whether Indic, Islamic, or Christian, appreciated it when attention was paid primarily to commercial dealings. Where China was concerned, despite the Portuguese monopoly in Macau, they managed to develop a monopoly of the tea trade with the Hong merchants of Canton. Again, civilizational differences were carefully set aside to ensure maximum profitability on both sides. 
In our region, Nusantara entrepreneurs continue to advance their interest in Sumatra and the former Malacca territories. The people who lived and worked in Singapore probably shared their outlook of those in the Johor Empire and responded to whatever changes were necessary to match the Dutch challenge. But for most of the 17th and 18th centuries, the local cultural elites did not think that this fourth civilization from Europe was superior to their, the three ancient ones that they had long been dealing with. The historical discourse today points to this period as a time when European commercial empires became dominant. It describes them as the first steps in the march of industrial capitalism, a revolutionary force that changed the course of world history. At its core was the view that modern civilization was born at the end of the 15th century, and the next three centuries constituted something that might be called early modern. No doubt this is credible when seen from Western Europe, but when describing, uh, but when describing what was happening there, it is less compelling as an explanation, or as a, as a as the term, early modern, when seen from our region, when the four civilizations were interacting and regarded as if they were equally important in an age of commerce. If we look at each of the civilizations during these centuries, there is an important corrective to the Eurocentric discourse. As described in my first lecture, Indic civilization was the most attractive to both parts of our region and left an indelible mark on the cultures developed there by most of its peoples. Later trading developments brought the region close to a Sinic, come Indic Buddhist civilization and then to the Islamic half of Mediterranean civilization that came by sea. The region remained open and inclusive and seemed to have been satisfied with selected bits of all three civilizations that they had incorporated into their own cultures. But what was happening within the three civilizations, each in its own way, had been oriented towards the Eurasian core when it emerged in historical records. Each was vulnerable to attacks from warring nomadic tribes of Central Asia, with the Indo-European speakers moving southwards and westwards, and the Turco-Mongolic conquest regions uh, to the east, south, and west, wherever they had opportunities to do so. These are the Turco-Mongols. For all of them, and for civilization that they attacked or adopted, there were no ideas about borders. The battles fought were between those whose cultures were based on great mobility, and the settled civilizations that fiercely defended the values and institutions they were proud of. Over the centuries, when the Atlantic maritime powers arrived in Asia, they changed the range and quality of all trade, and the civilizations involved seemed content to interact as peacefully as possible. The records show that the major conflicts were those between the European powers themselves. First the Dutch and the Portuguese, at times the English and the Dutch, and later the British and the French. In the meantime, 
back in Europe, a more fundamental struggle was going on. The thought leaders in several countries sought a better understanding of their common civilization's ancient roots, not only to purify and reinvigorate, reinvigorate their monotheistic faith, but also to challenge traditional power structures and seek a higher truth to prove their civilization's superiority. Thus began the rational and scientific quest for knowledge that would bring enlightenment to most Europeans. From the 17th to the early 18th century, they moved from a profound faith in the ancient to an affirmation of a humanistic modern. And that led them to a secular willingness to learn everything they could about the world that they encountered elsewhere. Notably, on the American continents, that was all theirs to conquer and civilize. The targets of the new mindset of discovery and exploration also included the ancient texts of the Indic and Sinic civilizations. Sanskrit studies, in particular, led them to see a common ancestral connection with other speakers of Indo-European languages and the heritage of related cultures. For the British, advancing into Mughal India, that also required them to reframe the linkages between Western Europe and Islamic Central Eurasia. In addition, the reports by Catholic missions introduced Western Europe to a somewhat idealized Sinaic civilization. The reports described the Confucian classics that provided moral guidance to the work of mandarins chosen by merit by an elaborate examination system. The literati, literati class there had produced comprehensive sets of historical and administrative records that focused on the value of order and harmony. And there was also an emphasis on material well-being as the goal of good governance and even the right of imperial subjects to rebel and seek a new mandate of heaven if those standards were not met. In short, the peoples in Europe saw their world changing in unexpected ways. Although the changes in mindset had begun with Renaissance Italy, the earlier Islamic challenges during the Abbasid Caliphate, Caliphate had included the growth of rational thought. The idea that the centers of learning could be exempt from the control of political authorities might also have induced the establishment of independent universities. In any case, by the 18th century, two generations of philosophers had questioned the belief that humans had been wiser and morally purer in earlier times. The Protestant Christians had gone far to claim that individuals could choose to be better people by seeking God's help without intermediaries. In addition, the ability to gain insights into the laws of nature encouraged scientific thinking, and more people began to believe that our capacity to reason could lead us to improve our understanding of the universe. That was a step towards a new civilization in which history could help believers to appreciate God's will and prove that advances to the human condition came from scientific knowledge and creative reasoning. 
All this stimulated fresh thinking about the effectiveness of aristocratic rule. The new class of bourgeoisie behind the capitalist industries that were emerging led to growing skepticism about tradition, especially the traditions that conferred immense power on the church and the monarchy. Beginning with the Protestant movement against the Catholic Church and the scientific revolution against received wisdom of any kind, it was inevitable that the modern would challenge the ancient and bring about the idea of progress. The idea that civilized people had to deal with the uncivilized and the barbaric was common to many parts of the world. In ancient times, the three ways the civilized deal dealt with the barbaric were simple. They could drive the barbaric peoples away as far as possible, as the Sinaic Chinese tried to do on their long continental frontiers. Or they could defend their borders to keep the barbarians out, as both the Indic and Sinaic civilizations were able to do most of the time. Or they could set out to make the barbarians civilized, either by force or by example, as first the Islamic and then the Euro-Christians succeeded in doing in Asia. However, the idea that modern civilization could go further and bring progress to humankind without any divine intervention was new. This became a subject of serious study and fierce debate during the 18th century. Ancient civilizations were identified, and research was done to show why most of them did not survive or had to give way to something better. Studies also explain why some regions did not produce their own civilizations, but developed distinctive local cultures by learning from one another and from neighboring civilizations. These local cultures could, after sovereign nations were developed, become the basis for national cultures. By the end of the 18th century, many thought leaders in Western Europe saw that a modern civilization could transform the ancient ones. With a successful Enlightenment project, the time would come when there's only modern civilization. As a progressive force, it would improve the human condition by replacing all ancient civilizations, by creating a rich and powerful world in which there's only a single global civilization. Everyone in the world would then enjoy the same kind of life that the advanced modern nations have been enjoying. Looking back from that vision of the future, we can see different examples of what had happened in history when any two civilizations came into contact. For example, in the case of the Indic and the Sinaic, the impact was all one way, when Buddhism became an integral part of a culturally, culturally enriched Sinaic civilization, whereas the Sinaic had no effect on the Indic whatsoever. Another example, where kingdoms or empires fought another in the name of civilizational differences, like when a monotheistic faith had led the way to a revolutionary new civilization. And this was when the persecuted Hebrews, Hebrews and Christians prevailed, and their faith in a single God 
became embodied in an imperial Greco-Roman hegemony, whether orthodox or papal. And then followed Islamic, the Islamic Arab challenge that offered what was seen as a purer route to seek God's truth. And after intense struggles for supremacy, their conflict spread across long distances to become a global phenomenon among the heathen or pagan, both on land and at sea. With that background in mind, we can see how transformative were the revolutions in Europe. They were not only scientific, philosophical, capitalist, and technological, but also had a great impact on the political structures and dynamics of the time. At its most dramatic, the English led the way with the execution of the absolutist King Charles I with Cromwell's Commonwealth and with the ideas of Hobbes and Locke. And these were further radicalized to include the newly enlightened, including the French philosophers Voltaire, Rousseau, and Diderot. And in a different context, their ideas turned into another kind of political revolution by a group of transatlantic Englishmen in New England, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and New York. The meeting of minds there created a nation of citizens in the 13 colonies of the United States. And then that was then followed by those citizens of the Republic of France. I shall take on the outcome of these revolutions in my next lecture. Before I end, let me suggest how Singapore and its neighborhood was becoming the frontier zone of the two kinds of power that stood for Europe's modern civilization in Asia. One was Bourbon France, supporting a state-centered economy. The other, the English and Dutch East India companies backed by parliaments committed to free trade. Their rivalry in the Indian Ocean was intense and ended with British victory. The French Revolution that followed overthrew the monarchy. In the words of Marie de Pain, it then devoured its children and this enabled Napoleon Bonaparte to mount the series of military campaigns that demonstrated the power of a new kind of national empire. What did our region know about the imperial ideas that this new nation represented, the new nation state represented? The allies of the French in India would have known about the revolution. The Javanese, Bugis, and Chinese working with the disintegrating VOC of the Dutch should have been aware the Dutch homeland was in danger. The few people in mainland Southeast Asia working with Catholic priests might have been aware that a civilizational renewal of some kind was taking place. And Chinese mandarins dealing with the Portuguese in Macau and the British and Dutch missions seeking official relations with Emperor Qianlong seemed to have sensed that major changes were afoot in Europe. What was certain was that none in our region and neighboring India and China would have thought that these faraway events could become central to the future of their civilizations and culture very shortly. By this time, the British were masters of the Indian Ocean. With a base in Penang, 
to assist their trade with China. They were quick to keep, the Dutch, keep Dutch Malacca out of the hands of the French. When the VOC was disbanded and the Dutch state threatened by Napoleon, Lord Minto in Calcutta appointed one Stamford Raffles to Java as Lieutenant Governor. Now that could be seen as the first move towards bringing modern civilization to the island of Singapore one decade later. A new kind of empire was being launched. I shall take up that story in my next lecture. Thank you. Thank you, Prof Wang. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please step up to the mic to ask your questions. May I now invite Dr. Nosharil, Senior Fellow at ISIS Yusuf Ishak Institute, to start the Q&A session. Thank you. Thank you, Professor uh, Wang Kangu, for that very uh, insightful uh, lecture. And uh, as we all know, that this is the second part of his uh, four lectures. So I think what he discussed today really falls nicely uh, and continues from where he left uh, in this first lecture. So in lecture one, Professor spoke about the relationship between cultures and civilization, particularly how Southeast Asian communities engage with Indic, Sinic, and Islamic civilizations. And it's interesting to observe how civilizations elicited responses from local communities by way of strengthening and transforming their cultures. In today's lecture, Prof Wang again reiterated the point that the people in the region shared a remarkable confidence in their ability to define local identities that enabled them to interact with neighboring civilizations. Um, Maybe just before we begin the questions and answers, I just want to share some of uh, Professor's point that strike me. Um, he began his lecture by looking at how the 13th century was pivotal yeah, because of Sinic and Islamic civilizations and how they made greater presence in this region. And Prof made the distinction between the behavior of mainland and archipelagic communities. Uh, just to quote Prof Wong there, they each chose what they thought would enhance their quality of life and make their respective local cultures stronger and more distinctive. And uh, today, I think Professor developed this argument further on the impact of interactions with local and national cultures. So that's the first point that strikes me. And then, of course, Prof's lecture moved into the age of commerce in the 18th century, uh, often said as the fourth civilization. Uh, this is remarkable because this is when Christianity began to make further inroads into this region and competed with the Islamic half. And he demonstrated the extent of the impact of civilization rivalry uh, in this region. Um, and of course, uh, it's very interesting when, when Prof made a distinction between the responses between the archipelagic communities, um, which are seen as more responsive, more open and inclusive compared to the mainland communities. And this actually elicited some, some thinking uh, uh, on my part, because I was looking at Islamic communities and how they differ in terms of the Islamic orientations, Prof. Until today, 
and we can see the differences between the coastal communities and, and the mainland communities. So I thought, I think we see a similar pattern uh, happening uh, during that period. And of course, uh, towards the end of Prof's lecture, um, Prof also covered the influence of capitalism, which is personally my favorite part of your lecture, Prof, because I was interested to look at colonial knowledge uh, and the role of Orientalism and how um, Europeans created this myth of the natives. Um, but I think uh, you also pointed out some form of shift in focus uh, among these European powers, um, particularly because of the intra-European rivalry between the Dutch, uh, Portuguese, as well as the English. And we can see that their focus, uh, rather than uh, seeing the Islamic Nusantara people as the enemies, I think there's a greater emphasis on more uh, commercial and capitalistic. And there's also a shift in terms of the discourse uh, that looks at more the indigenous tax and more humanistic uh, order uh, in this region. So these are some of the observations that I thought uh, that Prof made that really strikes me. Um, of course, there are many other takeaways uh, from uh, Professor Wang's lecture, but I think in the interest of time, we have about half an hour for questions and answers. So let's move straight into the questions and answers session. Uh, I will do my best uh, to uh, divide the time equally for questions from the audience here, as well as those uh, who post questions uh, online on, on Facebook. So may I now invite, uh, if anyone has a question, uh, please introduce yourself and speak directly into the mic. Anyone? No questions for now. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? Um, yes, please. Professor Wangangu, Dr. Saad. Uh, I thought some of you was great in your presentation. It's very insightful. But I wanted to relate this lecture with the previous lecture. And that was the underlying tone of this SRN lecture, fellowship, is on governance. And you profess that you will deal with history. But I thought uh, there could be a synergy between governance and your history in that when I look back at the Dr. Gokeng Sui, 1983, Royal Society Address on Economic Development and the Singapore Model. The centerpiece was governance and the way Singapore does it. But he had a very interesting point in the cultural, societal, historical part of it. And he introduced the idea of committed, that committed uh, process the committed process of government, governance and the role of the young populace, populace in society. And he cited, quite interestingly, Niccolo Machiavelli, that in major change, it was the young. And he said that the difference is this, Fortuna is a woman who loves younger men. 
because they are bolder and more hot-blooded and with audacity commands her. And when one looks at contemporary Asia, there is beginning of the young coming into social economic discourse, like in Malaysia, where Syed Siddiqui, he's a minister at 25, defended his role in MUA, the number 82nd vote, which now constitutes the coalition. And so uh, Dr. Goh was quite polite in not thinking about the PAP because during that time, LKY and the cohort were young people. And in two to three generations brought us from third world to first world. Maybe that's where the connection is. Your comments, please. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure how to link it up with what I've said so far. <laughs> but let me, let me say, when you talk about young people, I'm reminded of uh, the story of uh, Genghis Khan, how young he was when he got on his horse and led his people to conquer the world. He was very young. And of course, for those people in the steppelands, uh, they were onto their horses the moment they could walk. They would be riding their horses. So youth could be counted all the way back to the time when you can ride a horse and ride across the plains and conquer the world. And I think if you look at that, uh, that early period, all those people who were conquerors, remember Alexander the Great, if you go further back, even younger, um, he was conquered. Uh, uh, at that, at that point, a large part of what was the civilized world, and very young. And in his case, he died very young, so he, he, he achieved everything, and then died uh, before he was in his 30s, I think, uh, even younger than when Mr. Lee Kuan Yew became prime minister. And so uh, age is not, I'm sure, I'm not sure that is that crucial, depending on the culture and the timing. Uh, in those days, I think people didn't live that long, if you live to 50, if you haven't done it, save the world by 50, you weren't <laughs> worth talking about. Uh, today, I'm hoping to start at 50. So that's, 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 uh, we have an advantage. We have, we're given much more time. But I'm not sure that we can do it any better just because we're older. But it, it just goes to show, I think age is something that I, I would not have been able to, I would not be able to link it up with what I'm saying. What I do find interesting that, about your point when... Uh, what, what really someone like Goking Sri and talking about his generation were talking about was they were modern straight away. They had, they had no baggage. They were modern. And they were modern in the very simple sense that I think Singapore was actually modern from the day Stanford Raffles arrived. Because unlike the rest of Asia, when we had to learn about what is modernity, how to modernize, how to learn about the modern Western world, uh, when Minto sent Raffles here, and he came around and picked on Singapore, what he brought with him, especially after the uh, Anglo-Dutch Treaty, when they separated very clearly the position of Singapore, the whole structure of government was based on the most modern ideas about government that was available in the West, as set up by the East India Company, and what was available in London or, or Calcutta. So they, from day one, Singapore started as a modern port, serving as a link in a chain of ports of the British Empire 
which was that time the most modern national empire in the world already by their naval power reaching all corners of the globe. So Singapore actually had a very interesting start in, in the sense none of our neighbors had the same start as Singapore. Or maybe you can say Penang also had it, but Penang didn't follow through. Singapore followed through right through, right down to 1965 into something quite different. So the modernity of Singapore started on day one, as I see it. So what we're talking about, and I'll come back to more details later on, but what we're talking about, Singapore was modern. And Singapore's modern was, was, was part of a larger civilization. But it's all the people who came to Singapore, the people who, as I mentioned in my first lecture, the, the Marantau people who gathered into Singapore and some of them made their homes here and decided to settle and so on. All these people were representing different civilizations. They were not part of their modern civilization. That was in the structure of governance, as you say. In the governance was modern. But the people's lives, the way they traded, the way they lived, the religions that they brought with them and so on, they were still part of different civilizations, which in the eyes of the modern would be ancient civilizations. But what was happening was, as I said, suggested, our region was a place where these people brought with them their own religion, civilizations and so on. But they were, amongst them were the people who were native to the region, who were very confident in their own local cultures. So the local cultures were the basis. And these local cultures knew how to relate, how to pick and choose from the civilizations that they were in contact with, to pick what they wanted to make their cultures stronger and enrich their, their cultures. And they were not particularly uh, alarmed by the fact that there were different cultures. And the British government, of course, as in Singapore, was a very small government. It was a handful of officials. And they didn't try to do too much. They were very practical and uh, realistic. They did the minimum necessary to make the port function to, so that the free, free port conditions can be really attractive to people to come and help Singapore develop. So they had clear sim and simple objectives but didn't have to set up a very elaborate uh, modern governance, a very simple one. And then enough law and order, putting these, and instantly recognizing from very early on the nature of these, the, the, the people who were Marantau that came into Singapore, that they were from different civilizations, kept them apart. You can see that, the, in fact, almost from the beginning, they had a kind of instinctive understanding the, of, of a plural society emerging. Although the word plural society was not applied to Singapore originally, it was actually devised for Indonesia of the Dutch, Netherlands, East Indies by Furnival in the, in the 20th century. But the idea of a plural society, meaning each of them have their own sense of civilization, confident in their own ways, and so on. And as they came in, the British to make themselves simple, recognize them as different, respecting their differences, kept them in different locations, and dealt with them so that Singapore started with a modern government, a, a modern govern, government recognizing its civilizational differences among people. Because each of them were not, they're not, they're not necessarily local. They came from India, from China, elsewhere, bringing, in fact, representing different civilizations, but all accustomed to living with each other, working with each other, and without feeling any particular difficulty in doing so. And the, this modern government that uh, people like uh, the, uh, from 
Raffles onwards, all of them recognized they didn't have to do much with them. All they have to do is to provide a framework in which they can all function. And as they function in their own civilizational context, we're actually profiting the free port of Singapore. So do the minimum, and you're doing fine. So modern doesn't mean intervening in any detail. Modern can be a, a kind of understanding of how to make use, the best use, of what uh, of the resources available. And I think that attitude, that modern mind, went through whole of Singapore history down to 1965. So already in 1965, when Singapore started to become a nation, uh, only just begun, and I have to say, I still think it's work in progress, but they had started with that first base, a modern state was already there. They just continued with it, and they continued with to, under, to recognize that there were layers of civilizations in a plural society, which they acknowledge as being legitimate, equal, and essential for the order and harmony that the new nation needed. I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite answer your question, but that's how I would respond. Thank you. Thank you, Prof Wang. Um, I have a question from an online audience, but I will allow the gentleman, maybe, because I... Please, please. My name is Sun Xi. I'm a graduate of the Liquan School. Uh, Professor Wang was a former chairman of our school. Yeah, so thank you for your insightful and uh, actually too knowledgeable lecture. When I was listening to your lecture, I had to Google, you know, the terms. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's why, you know. So, so I know history is very important, you know. But for our use, you know, we, we at most, you know, we, we learn a lot of our own culture, but for others' culture, you know, I think we, we, we have to learn more, you know. So I'm from China, so I want to ask a question about the, you know, now Xi Jinping is uh, pushing the Chinese dream, the great uh, rejuvenation of Chinese nation, and uh, China is also pushing the One Belt, uh, uh, One Belt, One Road uh, initiative. Uh, so. In your opinion, what are the implications for those, you know, initiatives to ASEAN and uh, especially to Singapore? In terms of culture and uh, yes, civilization. I, I guess you're very impatient for me to get to the present. <laughs> uh, I, I, I understand the, the interest. So let me try and put it this way. I shall say more about it, of course, later on. But I will simply say that uh, um, China had its own ancient civilization really threatened. And uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, there were many Chinese leaders, intellectuals, and so on, who thought that their civilization had come to an end and they needed to have a revolution. And in fact, they had two revolutions, as you know, usually, usually recognized as one in 1912, in 1911, the other in 1949. They needed two revolutions to, to, to modernize, as they thought it was necessary, because otherwise their civilization or their country, their civilization, China itself would disappear, would be destroyed. So the, the need to modernize was very urgent, and they looked at it as absolutely essential 
to survive. And they modernized, except that they modernized in very different ways. Among themselves, they could not agree how to modernize. Because what is, and I will say more about this, what is modern is not so straightforward. It's not as simple as I, I just started to outline it, when it was essentially a difference between the, 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 the modern pushing aside all traditions, and not to depend on them for, for future development, but to use your own reasoning, your own scientific new methods of, of scientific analysis and, 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 uh, and, and research and technology to achieve better and more accurate and more uh, beneficial results for humanity. That's the kind of ideal. That was one drive. But in order to do that, you have to get rid of the traditions to do that. But that was done within itself, within the European civilization itself. They did it by, in fact, pushing aside their own ancient uh, traditions in order to achieve that. So it was in, in con there was a continuity there. But for us, uh, in, in a, let's take the example of China. For China to do that was to completely turn away from the Chinese civilization if they wanted to do that. And there are people who accuse the May 4th generation of having gone too far to completely start afresh, throwing the baby out of the bathwater, so to speak, and saying that uh, they even included, I think in Chinese you know, the phrase uh, that was used, total westernization. To be modern, you needed to throw away everything to do with the traditions and start the way the, Europe, the way they thought the Europeans did. But the Europeans didn't really do all that. The Europeans did that only for certain parts of things. They actually kept their, their, you might say, their Christian mission, which carried all the values of what was a civilization by itself, what their values about what is, what is good, what is good for humanity, what explains the universe, what makes our life meaningful, and so on. All those were carried, except that they secularized it. They turned it away from just a church mission into a, a scientific social mission to all humanity, and not referring to the church, but referring to a, a new set of ways of looking at the modern world. But they were doing it within their own tradition. But for the Chinese to do that, to say, turn away from your traditions altogether and totally start with or something like that, was really, one, on, one, on one side, unnecessary. On the other side, it did tremendous damage to the, to the confidence of the Chinese people, a lot of the intellectuals, and, and in the end, they lost their way. In, in trying to do that, they were in fact caught in the end between two, and possibly more, but two major contradictory choices. One to be more and more nationalistic, to, to, to save the country against foreigners, to be more and more nationalistic, and the other is to be so revolutionary to, de to destroy all traditions and start afresh. Start afresh with what? With no traditions whatsoever? This was never quite resolved. And those are, I'm giving you two extreme examples. But you can see that the Chinese dilemma at that time, once you took the line that we have to modernize by learning from the West, that, and, the, and, the, and they found that the West was very complicated. There was a West which was stood represented by liberal capitalism, there was West that was represented by socialism, which was actually a product of the same capitalism that produced the liberal capitalism, and the socialism was actually a product of capitalism. Uh, and so, but 
in, in the Chinese context, as you know from your modern Chinese history, they had to make choices. And the young generation had to choose between the two. And those who chose nationalism following Sun Yat-sen and the Kuomintang, and those who chose socialism following the Chinese Communist Party and the Soviet Union model, the Soviet model. They chose that. But both of them were modernizing. But they were modernizing in two very different ways. Now, I could go on about that, you can, but you can see that uh, this, this, that question is a very separate, different question from what I'm talking about at this stage. But if, I, if, we, if, you, if you're patient enough to come to my last lecture, I shall tell you more. All the more, I think, Prof, we should, we should attend, all the, complete all your lectures. I think you will cover on the more recent uh, events. I, I promise to take one question online, if I may, uh, uh, by uh, Tio Li Yen. Uh, I think the question is about the influence of language. You spoke a, a lot about culture and resilience of culture, but how, how, where does language feature? Uh, because language has a strong influence on one's values and cultural traditions. And then coming to the contemporary, of course, we have the mother tongue program and how it shapes our cultural identity. So where, where, where do you see the role of language here in, in of course, uh, dealing with the, the influences from, from the region? Uh, in, my, in my last session, I also asked a question about language too. And uh, I think my answer is still roughly the same. And that is that we must distinguish between language as a national, as a natural expression of as, as human beings from the day we can say, ah, call your father, mother, and so on, which is the spoken language that is natural, and that everybody has a different, uh, spoken, every, every little group has a different uh, language, which is peculiar to its group, and can, as long as you communicate within your group, that language is functional. But what we're talking about when you talk about civilizations is a literate language. And literacy represents a different, you might say, dimension of, of uh, our human lives, our, our, our cultural existence, our cultural awareness. And li literacy carries everything. It carries memory, it carries all the achievements that have been made in the past can be transmitted for generation after generation and can continue to be enriched and improved upon, and so on and so forth. And yes, in fact, it is endless. And I, I, add, I would add, it's also borderless. Once it's literate, it's border. Anybody can learn, the, can learn the language. Whereas a spoken language is something that is absolutely essential for your own culture. Your own, within your own culture, however small, tribal, whatever, to, within yourself is an in, inward, inward looking thing, is a spoken language. And that is very deeply associated with your whole life, as it were. It's deeply embedded in you. That, that is very sacred and something that is peculiar to every individual and the family and its close, close community. But literacy and civilization is something else. And that, I think, if, we can, if the questioner can bear that in mind, maybe what he should ask the, the next question is, how, in what way do you distinguish the two? Both are very important but they're important on a very different scale. And without a literate language, you cannot, to my mind anyway, transmit civilizations. And so that must come. And once you have, you can see a lot of these so-called ancient civilizations that Arnold Toynbee used to identify. I find it difficult to, to understand them as civilizations. Some of them, for example, 
they really did not have a language. They didn't, they were managed to develop a very sophisticated set of cultural uh, traditions and, and heritage without actually having a, a literate language. That is possible, but I, I find it difficult to call it a civilization. I say it's a fantastic, amazing culture, rich in, in, in all sorts of ways, especially in Latin America, and in some of the desert places of the nomadic peoples, they were able to produce fantastic cultures without, and, and had spoken languages, but never had literacy. And were quite happy to take other people's languages. They adopt some of the language, take other people's scripts, and use other scripts to write their own language. So that, but that is civilization. So the, the scale of, of uh, communication and impact on the world and on, human, or, or on humanity is quite different. So the language you've got to distinguish. And there are many layers of sophistication in the language too. So that again, in fact, you can use the literate language to measure the sophistication of your civilization. What you can express, the sort of things you can express. For example, the kind of the language used by scientists and technologists today, they express a whole range of things that I don't understand at all. And they're using language, I read it, but I don't understand what, what they're talking about. And I remember on one particular occasion, I chaired a, 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 a committee trying to appoint a professor of chemistry at a very, and very fantastic applications, very powerful references and so on. And uh, in my committee were several chemists who were helping me make, this, uh, make, a, make a selection. And they admitted to me, some of them, that some of the papers they couldn't understand. And that is in their own field because they're so specialized and using language, some of them symbolic, but some of them actual language, which was almost impossible to understand unless you specialize in the same way to the same extent. So at that level, you see, and now when they talk about AIs, hyperspace, all these things, they're using words which I have no idea what, what to make of. And so, but that is also language. Now, does that actually make the civilization greater or better? I do not know, but they actually represent a different civilizational dimension that we have to take into account. I think uh, we are inching towards the end of the question and answers, but we have one question. I have another question here online. Maybe we take the gentleman's question, and I'll combine with the last question. Um, thank you very much, Professor Wang. Uh, Ewan Graham from the International Institute of Strategic Studies um, based here in, in Singapore. Um, you've talked a little bit about technology just in your response to the last answer, but um, the impression I got from your, your fascinating lecture was that technology emerged as somewhat of a, a subdued or, or recessed theme. And I'm struck that, that um, that's a, a contrast with how one would approach uh, the competition between major powers now, which is very often framed with technology as the paramount uh, factor. So. Um, I'm just interested in, 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 in that, whether I, I got the, the correct inference, whether technology is actually subordinate to these wider civilizational governance, the spread of ideas, religions, uh, or, are, or is actually, uh, maybe, are there other themes that could be teased out there? If I could smuggle in a brief second question, as a, a, a reformed Southeast Asian uh, studies student many years ago, I, my knowledge is somewhat hazy now, but if we're talking about the Nusantara um, archipelagic region, uh, there is a version of, of history that, that posits that Srivijaya civilization was much more open uh, and 
uh, trade-oriented than Majapahit in, uh, in Java. Have I got that wrong? And if not, um, how do you account for that difference within the same civilization, despite the fact that they, are, they, they, they share the same maritime open geography? Thank you. Well, I think the first question is really a very big question indeed. But if I may use my historian's uh, uh, privilege, as it were, and use the past, technology has always been important in any, any group of people achieving a sense of superiority over somebody else or having something to offer somebody else by having a superior set, set of techniques for doing things. I mean, the civilization that could grow plants quicker, better quality, wheat or rice or whatever it is, has a superior technology to those who have very primitive instruments and so on. So that has always been there. It's built into the way human beings have developed over the millennia. So it's part of culture, it's part of civilization, it's all there. Technology has always never been, never been out of play, always in play. In fact, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with a great work, some 20 volumes, 20 plus volumes, called Science and Civilization in China by uh, uh, Joseph Needham, and he uses the word science and civilization. But of course, the whole, the whole debate about science in China was that it wasn't really science as we understand it. What it was was technology. That from the very beginning, the superiority of Chinese civilization in the region was its agricultural technology, which was really superior. It, it, it enabled that, those, that areas down the two river valleys to produce so much and enabled it to eventually become one of the richest empires in the world. This is, of course, the same in the Nile or Tigris Euphrates. It's the ability to do that. So from that point of view, it's never been science. Science is, again, something else. That is modern. That requires a, a set of systematic uh, set of methodologies to develop w into another dimension. But the technology that human beings, skill, skills that they develop in order to do things, make things, and improve their livelihoods and produce more, that is so deeply rooted in the way civilization grew, uh, cultures and so both grew and depended on technology. That is fundamental. In fact, in fact, if anything, if we talk about the three civilizations in this part of the world, the most important Chinese contribution has always been in the technology areas, in trade and technology, in, in, in the trade in the area. They've never been greatly influential in ideational or political and other influences, which is very strong from India, and then later on Islam and Christianity. But the Chinese have not had that influence except on Vietnam. But their influence on skills, manufacturers, technologies, and so on, down to the present, is still that, that, that is the, the particular strength of their, of their civilization. But for your second question, it's a very interesting one. It, again, it cropped up, cropped up uh, in the last, last lecture. Uh, the thing is that I don't think we would talk about Sri Vijaya civilization or Majapahit civilization. They are both part and parcel of Indic civilization that have been localized, domesticated, and, and in, with indigenous elements. In the case of Sri Vijaya, more maritime, because it's always been the base of telesocratry, as it were, based on the sea, a political system based on controlling sea routes and, and, and individual ports. Whereas the Majapahit Empire, which came much later, was really based on an agrarian, essentially agrarian civilization in East Java. 
And uh, that, and the, as I said, because I'm not able to prove it, all I'm saying is that the fertility of the, the volcanic soil in Java enable agriculture to be fantastically successful from, very, from the very beginning, very easily. Whereas the rest of uh, Nusantara, all those islands had very difficult soil. In fact, they're not very easy for agricultural development, whether in the Malay Peninsula, Sumatra, Borneo. Agriculture was not, very, not at all easy. I was reminded of this story once by someone who said, the Javanese were such great peasants and fantastically successful with agriculture in Java. So the Dutch invented the idea of the transportation system. They transported them. They wanted to bring their techniques and so on to Sumatra, to South Sumatra, and then to Borneo, and so on. Well, they did not succeed. They were, in fact, they had tremendous difficulty in surviving in those areas because the conditions were not at all like what they was in, in Java. When, as the story goes, put a stick in the ground and it would grow. Uh, that, that simply did not, can be, cannot be found elsewhere. So the, the tendency for the agrarian basis for the Majapahit kind of uh, a world, a political world, a system of governance and so on, which is very different, which is land-based, essentially land-based. And you can see the monuments of Borobudur, Brambanan, and so on. Only that, they can develop it. Nothing like that in the rest of Nusantara. And because they were different, they were not interested in that kind of monument. They were interested in their mobility at sea, and that was their strength. And incidentally, both are equally Indic, because one was a little bit more Hindu, the other was purely Buddhist, almost purely Buddhist. Srivijaya was very much a center of Buddhist uh, culture. And the, and the Chinese used Srivijaya to prepare themselves to study Buddhism on their way to India. So I think, I, I hope that answers your question. I think I, I would like to maybe just raise the last question which has been online. Um, I think very briefly, Prof, uh, because uh, this is a question by Liu Yang He, um, who asks about, you know, you mentioned about the Indic, Islamic, and Christian civilizations coming. And uh, I mean, what about the other religions? You know, how do they fare? And how come they did not make that much inroads? For instance, the examples given is Taoism and Confucianism. I'm just wondering whether you have any thoughts on that. Well, Confucianism and Taoism are part and parcel of what eventually we call Sinaic civilization. In fact, I would say that Sinaic civilization was greatly enriched by Buddhism, which came from India. So without that Indic component in Chinese civilization, yeah. Chinese civilization would be much poorer. So the Confucianism and the Taoism was indigenous, but the, uh, but the Buddhist was from India, from Indic civilization. But that together, I think together, is the basis of Sinaic civilization. And this actually underlines the fact that the point that I've been making, that civilizations are borderless. Anybody can take. If you like it, if you believe it can help you, make you a better person, make, give you a better sense of what life means and how to become a better, a better human being, as it were, you can draw from it, you will attract from it, and it's borderless in that sense. In that sense, it's different from cultures. I think cultures are actually localized and produced for your own, to produce your own identity, your own sense of belonging, and so on. Civilizations don't have that. It actually can spread. So why certain religions don't do I don't know about any religion that, that has survived to the day today. For example, Zoroastrianism or Manichaeism or the, the, or, or 
world, in the, in the old, old Iranian world, and they, they lasted a long time, but they have not survived. They have been absorbed in a way, other ways. Uh, there are still some people left, the Parsis and the, some Zoroastrians still around, but they have been a very minimal people. But then that's a choice in the civilization itself. It does not have an impact now on the rest of the world today. But look at, look at the remarkable experience of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. They did not ex in, 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 in enlarge themselves in numbers. They were extremely exclusive. And for a long time, they, they, nobody could be a Jew. I mean, you, if, at the strictest, you have to have a mother who's a Jew to, to be a Jew if you're really strict about it. But I'm just, just to show how, how, how they defined it in that way. And yet, they have survived all this time. And they were the, in, the source of inspiration for two civilizations, in fact. Uh, what became an Islamic civilization and what became a Christian civilization came out of them, but they remained very small. They remained completely identified with a very small group of people. But you can't say it wasn't, it could have been a civilization, yes. but it is not because almost by choice, because they don't believe that, they, that that's their job. There was enough for them to be, you might say, the Hebrew nation. In fact, nation, and some people may argue, that the first ancient nation was probably the Jewish nation because they had a sense of nationhood uh, which uh, had a religious base, but it was not dependent on, uh, on, on acquiring other national characteristics, uh, other national or civilizational characteristics. They were self-sufficient in itself, but that's a very narrow view of it all. I won't go into that, but it's just to illustrate that uh, uh, there, are, there have been other religions that have been established, I, was, I remember being fascinated to discover in the middle of Fujian somewhere, um, not far from Shenzhou, I, we found there's, a, there's an old temple which claims to be a Manichaean temple. And uh, I have no doubt it's true, but no, it no longer looks anything like what we consider to be a Zoroastrian or to do with Mani in, 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 in the, in the uh, Iranian-Persian background. It looks very much like a Chinese temple to me, anyway. And, but they, they, people say they are descended from a group of believers in Manichaeism from the Tang Dynasty, and they lasted to for a thousand years till only fairly recently in the, during the Ming and Qing Dynasty where they be, began to merge into becoming like a Buddhist or Taoist uh, temple. But they never lost their sense of identifying with that ancient civilization. So, Civilizations can merge into something else. But, uh, but then, as I said, it could survive for a long, long time. And of course, people have written about the Jews of uh, Kaifeng, for example. Uh, exactly when they arrived, we do not know. But the Jews arrived in Tang Dynasty from the 7th century onwards, if not earlier. And they were trading in China. And one group of them survived in Kaifeng, very difficult to explain. And they don't themselves call, recognize themselves as Jews, but their practices were almost, you might say, copied from what the Jewish people left behind. They looked all like Chinese. They had intermarried over the centuries. But it was Catholic priests who did scholarly work and did research among their papers to discover that they were descended from Jews who had merchants who had settled in Kaifeng, a thousand years ago. So that's remarkable. So you can say, yes, that's the civilization that survived, 
It has no impact on anybody, but it has survived. And, yet, and, and it's remarkable. And, and in, in that case, we don't call it a civilization because nobody bought it from them. They never transmitted it to anybody else. They just kept it to themselves, and they, but they kept it going until, until they were recognized. And they still were practicing, following certain rituals, which were only done by the Jews. And the Catholics recognized it. The scholars recognized it. It's very, very interesting examples of that. Thank you. Thank you, Prof Wang. I think uh, we have to draw this uh, question and answer session to a close. And I, I really enjoyed your talk, Prof Wang. I think this is very insightful. And I really enjoyed the questions and answer session as well. I mean, there's so many points that you raise that leaves me uh, think. And of course, you have, of course, uh, uh, raised certain points that, uh, of course, would invite us to, to of course, come for your, for your third and fourth lecture. And, and uh, maybe there, there are many works out there, ladies and gentlemen, that talks about civilizations. I mean, describing its rise and its fall. I mean, Francis Fukuyama himself has written extensive volumes about this. But I think today, Prof has shared something new and I've learned a lot, talking about the interactions between civilizations and cultures. And particularly the case study uh, on Southeast Asia is particularly fascinating. How it, I mean, there's no civilization per se here, but of course the, the interactions and the developments of local cultures is itself very interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And let's maybe put our hands together to thank Prof Wang Gangwe for the very insightful session. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nosharia and Professor Wang, who have come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please click our link on the Facebook feed or scan the QR code on the screen to submit your feedback. Professor Wang's third lecture will take place on 8 February next year. Details will be on our website and IPS Facebook page next month. We hope to see you then. Thank you. Thank you.